Father, as we come before you, God, uh, we know that uh, you're our God. Uh, that's why we're here this morning. And God, uh, there is none other than you. So we can't cry out to anyone or call on anyone with an expectation that uh, uh, things can happen that seem impossible. But God, you're the one. And also, you sent Jesus to save us. And uh, because of what Jesus has done for us, we have eternity to look forward to. But we're in a world, God, where people don't understand that. They need you. They need to hear and, and see and know what your uh, uh, son has done. And they find things out like that through the church and your people. So God, help us to reach out and do the right things in this time. Help us to be careful with our words and, and uh, our thoughts, Lord, uh, uh, because the devil likes to direct us in, in our anger and hurt and frustration. So, God, show us the way through this because of who you are. We're asking you that, Lord, and we're asking that you'll put people in our path this week and in the time to come that we can bring encouragement to in times when it's discouraging and it's all about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Dean. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I'm going to ask you to open up to the book of Proverbs right in the center of your Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, there are Bibles in the chair rack. I encourage you to grab one so that you have it in your hand. This is one of those times that you're going to want to see a Bible in print. Even if you traditionally watch or read on your phone or an iPad with you, in print is going to be a whole lot better this morning. So once you have a Bible in your hand, turn to Proverbs and then go to the first chapter. We're about to take a 30,000-foot flyover view of the book of Proverbs, but we're doing it for a specific reason. Hang with me as we go all the way through this. If you're in Proverbs chapter 1, I want you to put your thumb right there, and then fast forward to chapter 22, verse 16. Proverbs 22, verse 16. When you get there... If you would, between your thumb and your finger, just pinch those pages together and hold them up just like this. Just like this. Those verses in the book of Proverbs are credited to Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. His wisdom came from the Lord. God granted it to him after he had requested it. An amazing thing. Those words from the first verse of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 22, verse 16 came directly from that wisdom. Those words came directly from God. Now, go ahead and lay that down and look at Proverbs 22, verse 17. Then if you would, keep a thumb right there, but fast forward to chapter 24, verse 34. So just a couple of pages, but then hold them up just like that. Those verses... Between Proverbs twenty-two seventeen and Proverbs twenty-two verse thirty-four are called the wisdom sayings. Now the wisdom sayings were written by Solomon, but they did not come from Solomon. Those are things that he heard other people say, and then he wrote them down. 
You know how that works. You hear something that stirs your heart, and you write it on a sticky note and maybe put it on the mirror in your bathroom or you put it on the dash of your pickup so you'll remember it and you'll maybe get to drive it into your heart and it will take root there. These are the types of things that are included in those verses. Those are Solomon's sticky notes. Somebody went through all of his shoeboxes, piles, files, whatever you want to call it, and they put those together. They did not come from Solomon, but they meant a great deal to him. Now let's go to chapter 25 through 29. Here's what you're going to find in the book of Proverbs about these four chapters. Verse 1 of chapter 25. These also were Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. These words came from Solomon. Once again, they came from him, and he wrote them down somewhere, and the scribes under King Hezekiah wrote them down for our benefit. They were preserved so that we would be able to see them, and all the generations after would be able to see them. They came from Solomon, but they were written by the scribes, and that's how they became a part of this book. Chapter 30 is credited to a different author. Take a look at this in verse 1 of chapter 30. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle. Now these are the only words in the book of Proverbs that are not somehow tied to Solomon. They come from someone else. One entire chapter is given to a different author. That is very important. Chapter 31, though, could be a little bit confusing if you're not careful. Look at how it starts. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. Lemuel is widely accepted to be another name or a nickname for Solomon. So Proverbs 31 is credited to him for the authorship. Now here's why we do all of this. When you are studying the Bible, getting the context and the authorship in mind is incredibly important. Authorship is traditionally very easy to pick out, but as you see in the book of Proverbs, a book that we credit to Solomon, the book of wisdom, there are some variances within it, and it is necessary to know the context for the verses that you are reading and studying so that you can follow the right application of those verses. Context matters a great deal. And we just took this huge flyover so that we could land in one specific spot, but the context is going to matter. Join me in chapter 22. Proverbs 22, verse 28. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Now, real quick, here's the test. Did Solomon write that? No. Somebody else did. Solomon put it on a sticky note. It meant something to him, enough that he wrote it down. It's one of those quotes that inspired him. It stirred his heart, and he didn't want to lose the words or the meaning behind it. So Solomon wrote it down. And when they were going through those piles on his desk, or they were digging through his shoebox, or they were pulling the sticky notes off the mirror, that was there. That's one of Solomon's sticky notes. But somebody else said it. And it moved him, so he didn't want anybody to lose it. 
Now, it is incredibly intriguing to know that Solomon would be moved by these words, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set, because it seems to make sense within the context of the whole of his life. Everything that we know about King Solomon, son of David, he was wiser than any king that had lived before him or after. He had greater wealth than any king before him or after. Not moving the landmarks would matter. Now remember, when you're studying something like this, you want to know the context and you want to know the authorship. But there's another component that really becomes very important, and that is the date that is associated with the writing. When did he grab hold of this quote? When did this become a part of his life? Well, I understand the context. I understand the authorship. It wasn't Solomon. It was somebody else, but that spoke to his heart. What I wanted to know was the date. I wanted to know when he grabbed this saying, so I started digging around in everything that I could possibly find to find that answer, and I could not do it. I could not find that answer. So this fits in the realm of Phil's speculation. This is not biblical authority, and please do not believe that it is. This is Phil's speculation. When we cannot find the exact answer, there is freedom in Bible study to do a little bit of speculation, just a little bit, because it has to measure up against everything else. But here's what I believe. I believe that when Solomon found this saying, do not move the ancient landmarks that your fathers have set up, he discovered that near the end of his life. Because Solomon, for all of his wisdom and all of his riches, had a problem with landmarks. He moved them. He moved them. He didn't respect them. And it cost him greatly. It cost the nation of Israel dearly. Because Solomon, their king, with all of his wisdom and all of his riches, didn't respect the landmarks. One in particular got him in trouble. Let me show it to you. You don't have to turn with me. Just listen closely. This is found in the book of Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter, verse one. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. There's the landmark. God said, when you move into the promised land, I'm going to drive these people out ahead of you. They are stronger than you. They are mightier than you. They outnumber you. But I will go with you and we will drive them out of the land. And when that happens, here's the landmark. Don't you intermarry. Because if you do, the wives that marry your sons will lead them away from their worship of me. Don't you intermarry. You make sure that you protect this. The landmark is set. And Solomon didn't pay attention. Watch what happens. This is 1 Kings chapter 11. 
Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. 700 times, 700 times, Solomon picked up the landmark that God had set and he moved it. Then 300 more after that. 1,000 times, Solomon picked up the landmark and he moved it. And it cost him everything. Because you see, the nation of Israel would be divided as a result of that. It would no longer be a unified nation. You would have the nation of Israel to the north and the nation of Judah to the south because of what Solomon did. Because he didn't respect the landmark. Because he moved it, not just once, not just twice, but a thousand times. And all of the effects that God had prophesied came true when he did that. All of those wives and concubines turned his heart away from his solely dedicated worship of Jehovah God. And he started to build temples to foreign gods and high places to foreign gods. And he set up idols for the worship of foreign gods. A thousand times he picked up the landmark and he moved it. A thousand times. That's amazing. That is amazing. But my friends, it's easy to point fingers at Solomon until we realize that we all do the same thing. The landmarks of the Lord are placed in such a way that we are to stay on the inside of the boundary, yet we don't like the inside of the boundary, and the grass looks really green on the other side of the landmark, and we want what's over there, so we pick up the landmark and we move it so that we get what was just on the other side of the boundary and we think that's going to satisfy us. And when it doesn't, we pick up the boundary, the landmark again, and we move it so that we get what's just on the other side of it and we think that's going to satisfy us. But it doesn't, so we pick up the boundary and we move it until eventually we get to a place where we just kick the landmark down. We let the grass grow up over the top of it and we step over it all the time, forgetting that it's even there. Happens a lot. Yet Solomon, when he would look back, if my speculation is right, on all of his life, he would say, do not move the landmarks, the ancient landmarks that your fathers have set. You stay on the inside of them because you don't want to pay the price for it if you do. That's good wisdom. Whoever it came from, Solomon grabbed hold of it and passed it on to us because he knew what would happen if we move the landmarks. Interestingly enough, there is a spiritual characteristic, a spiritual trait given to us in our walk with the Lord to keep us on the inside of the boundary. That trait 
that characteristic, that gift from God, is often overlooked and ignored. People just move right past it, particularly within modern Christianity. The trait, the characteristic, the gift is fear. Holy, healthy fear. As long as we have that, we're not going to move landmarks. When it disappears, we're in trouble. And I want to show you what that looks like. In order to do that, we're going to have to go back to the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, after the creation account of the first chapter, we read about Adam and Eve and how the Lord brought them together. It's quite a romantic story. Read it if you never have. It's a great romantic story. But in chapter 3, the romance, well, it loses some of its shine because the devil enters the relationship. The devil comes into the garden. And what we're about to see in just a few short verses is a pattern of landmark moving. So I want you to read this very closely and listen very critically as we go through it. I'm going to show you the steps of landmark moving. And you may find yourself in the midst of it. I know I did. Watch this. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent is the devil. He said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We are just one verse into this chapter when the pattern begins to emerge. And the first visible sign of it is found in what I refer to as the question, where the devil causes us to question what God said. Now follow that. The devil causes us to question what God says. He causes us to question the landmark. But God is always around when that happens. Verse 2, look at this. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There's the reminder of the landmark. So the question comes first, and the reminder is right on the heels of it. God is saying, Remember this. Remember this. But here's a really intriguing detail within the midst of this story that if you're not paying close attention to, you will miss it. Eve was not there when God set that landmark in place. Adam was. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There is one degree of separation between the placing of the landmark and the fall. One degree of separation. That's all it takes. Just one degree of separation. Eve wasn't there when God put the landmark in place. Adam was, but did you see the craftiness of the serpent? The serpent didn't go to Adam first. He went to Eve because he needed the one degree of separation. Just one degree. That's all it takes. So God reminded Eve of the landmark. The question was asked and the reminder followed, but the one degree of separation weakened things. So look at the third step what I refer to as the lie. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's the lie. You will not surely die. Pay attention to this, my friends. The devil always lies. He is the father of lies. So when it comes to him causing you to question the landmark that God has put into place, always know that God will send you a reminder and the devil will follow it with a lie. Listen for the lie. Pay attention to the lie because the lie is always in the shadows. And when it comes out, if you don't rebuke it on the spot, then the results of it are tragic. We're going to pick up verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight of the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, but she also gave same to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now there's a justification in there because she saw that the fruit looked good. I want that. That was the justification. It was desirable to her eyes. And right on the heels of the justification comes what I refer to as the fall and the fellowship. So she took it, that's the fall, and then there was the fellowship. She wanted Adam to join her. Sin always does that. When we move a landmark, when we move a boundary, and we move out into that new area, we always want other people to go with us. Misery loves company, but so does sin. We want other people to go with us. So when the ancient landmark gets moved, the first time, the second time, the third time, however many times, you're always going to try to bring people with you. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We're going to pick up in verse 8 now and I want you to listen closely for what happened. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The moment that the fall happened and their eyes were opened, their eyes were opened not only to know good and evil, but to know that what they had done was wrong. They were afraid. And Adam confessed that. We hid because we were afraid. We're hiding because we're afraid. Now you have to ask the question, what were they afraid of? Were they afraid of God? They had no reason to be afraid of God because they had no history that would have taught them to be afraid of God. Were they afraid of sin? They had no history to teach them to be afraid of sin. But now that their eyes were opened, fear kicked in and what they were afraid of were the consequences of their sin. They were afraid of what was going to happen as well they should have been because as a direct result of this, God kicked them out of the garden. And face-to-face fellowship with the Lord came to an end. They should have been afraid. And Adam, in all of his wisdom, told the Lord, we hid because we were naked and we were afraid. And God said, what happened? What happened? If Adam could, he would have said it like this, at least in my imagination. We moved the landmark, the ancient landmark that you set. We moved it. We moved it. And here's how. 
we listened to a question and we were reminded of the landmark, but then a lie came. And as soon as the lie came, then we justified the lie and then the fall and then the fellowship. And here we are, we are afraid. We are afraid. And there is no reason in the world for us to believe that they ever lost that fear. Even outside of the garden, there is nothing to tell us in the Bible that they ever lost that fear. As far as we know, from that point forward, Adam and Eve walked with the Lord. As far as we know, from that point forward, there was no problem at all in their lives. But in one more degree of separation, a problem shows up. Join me in chapter 4. Verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. One more degree of separation, and fear is replaced with anger. See how that works? The fear of the Lord gets replaced with anger. What he had done was not acceptable to the Lord, and Cain got angry at God for that. Instead of being afraid of the consequences, he replaced fear with anger. We're just two degrees separated from the placement of the landmark, and this is what happens. This is what happens. It's amazing how that takes place. It's one of the reasons that we need to remember this. Your walk with God must be your walk with God. I hear on a regular basis, and Deanie, I know that you do too, people come into my office and they'll say, I don't know how this happened in my life. I don't know how I got here. My dad was a preacher. Or people will say, I was raised by my parents in the church. I was raised in the things of the Lord. How did this happen? Deanie, you hear this, don't you? It's just one degree of separation. Just one degree of separation. When you place the responsibility for your faith on your parents or your grandparents or another person, you have a degree of separation where danger lurks. And fear keeps us from getting there. Fear eats up that degree of separation so that we remain close to God. And if we don't, in that degree of separation, fear kicks in. And that's or no, I'm sorry, anger kicks in and it replaces fear. 
And that's where we're in trouble. That's where we're in trouble. So we have to be careful of it. So you might ask, and it's a good question, how do we do that? How do we hold on to that? Because like I've already established, in modern Christianity and popular preaching, fear of the Lord is not taught. Fear in our walk with God is not taught. We believe that God just wants to give us everything that we've ever wanted, everything we've ever desired. The Lord just wants to pour it out on us. So fear has no place, yet it does. Fear should be taught. We should be reminding people that there is a healthy, holy place for fear. And here's the way it works. When we will remember that fear is always coupled with something else, then we can embrace it. Join me in the book of Psalms. I'll show you what that is. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11. The psalmist writes, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Fear and joy go hand in hand. Fear and joy go hand in hand. This last week, I was having a conversation with Jim Higgins out in the parking lot of the church. Always enjoy my conversations with Jim. They're inspirational and cause my mind to be stretched in all kinds of different ways. As we were standing in the parking lot, Jim was talking about something near and dear to his heart. Freedom. Now, if you don't know Jim, you're not aware of the fact that his entire professional career was invested in protecting the freedoms of our nation. It's what Jim did for a living. So he knows that of which he speaks. So as we're in the parking lot, Jim makes this comment to me about freedom. It's really good. He said, there are two sides to freedom. There are always two sides to freedom. There's freedom, and then flip the nickel over, there's responsibility. We want to separate the responsibility away from the freedom. We all want what freedom promises. I get to live under the freedoms that I want and I desire, but I have no responsibility that goes with that. And at the minute that responsibility or in the moment where responsibility comes in, where I'm taught that I have to be considerate of other people and I have to think about them, we want to walk away from that responsibility and hold on only to the freedom. If you don't believe that, read what's going on in Seattle right now. They want freedom with no responsibility until their freedoms get out of hand and then they want somebody else to be responsible for the freedoms that they have pushed on themselves and everybody else. That's the way that works. Freedom and responsibility always go hand in hand. So do fear and joy. So do fear and joy. We want the joy side of the relationship with God, but we don't want the fear side. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. I like the way a fellow named Alexander Tyndale says this. He is a professor at Tyndale Biblical Seminary. Now, watch the difference in their spelling. His name is Tyndale. He works at Tyndale. They are not the same. There is no connection. So, take a look at his quote. Christians seem terribly afraid of fear. We want to stress motivation from positive emotions such as love and gratitude and tend to be very uncomfortable with any use of fear appeals to motivate conversion or growth and holiness. Such fear of fear, however, comes at a cost, and the warning passages throughout Scripture suffer neglect or interpretive abuse as a result. Many Christian leaders seem determined to convince their hearers that they should never experience any emotional discomfort when contemplating God's holiness, justice, and judgment. The fear of the Lord is always understood to mean respect or awe, 
And never, we are told, indicates that we should actually be afraid of God. That's popular Christianity. That's popular teaching, and it is so wrong. There is a place for fear. It is coupled with joy. I want to experience the joy of the Lord. Fear becomes the protector of that. Fear becomes the governance over that so that I continually remain on the right side of the landmarks. And when I lose that, I'm going to see false joy on the other side and I'm going to pick up the landmark and I'm going to move it. That's the way it works. I want freedom without responsibility. I want joy without fear. That's a dangerous place to be. I was Friday afternoon wrapping up the message and wondering to myself what it would be like to talk to Adam and Eve 10 years removed from the garden, 10 years after the fall. I was really curious what it might sound like. And Four of our staff members were here at the church, and so I, I visited with the, the four of them, two women and two men, to get different perspectives. Beth was the first one that I talked to. I said, Beth, I want you to tell me from Eve's perspective, 10 years after the experience in the garden and the fall of mankind, what she might have said. I'm just looking for one quote. What do you think she would have said as she told you about that whole story? What quote would rise to the top? This was Beth's answer. If only I could have a do-over. It's pretty good. Marianne Orr had absolutely no idea that I'd had that conversation with Beth. So I went and talked to Marianne and I asked her the same question. Ten years removed from the garden, what do you think Eve would have said? Look at her answer. I wish I could do it all over again. Pretty intriguing, isn't it? Then I wanted Adam's perspective. So Matt was in his office, and I sat down and visited with him. I laid the whole thing out, and I said, Matt, give me your perspective. Give me your wisdom on this. What do you think Adam would have said 10, year, said 10 years removed from the garden? Just one quote that would rise to the top. He said, I wish I hadn't just stood by and watched. It's pretty good. And then I talked to Deanie about it, and I laid the whole scenario out for him, and I said, from Adam's perspective, what would Adam have said? And Deanie made this statement. I wish I had paid attention to what the Lord had told me, the ancient landmark. I wish I'd have listened to it. It just takes 10 years to be able to look back and say, look at the consequences. I wish I'd have done this. Or now I wish I could do it again because I'd certainly do it different. That's healthy, holy fear as it governs us, as it holds us on the right side of the ancient landmark. It keeps us within the boundaries. But as we were developing the idea even more, Deanie and I sat and talked later in the afternoon and, and I said, okay, let's take this whole idea and, and stretch it out a little bit further. I asked him if his girls grew up with a healthy fear of him as their father. He didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely they did. My children would say the same thing, all three of them. Two of my children are here. They're standing out in the lobby right at the moment, but they're here. They're out in the lobby. If you were to visit with my boys and ask them if they grew up with a healthy fear of their father, they would say yes. They would say yes, and if they didn't, they're in trouble. <laughs> but then I said to Deanie, Amelia, your little two-year-old granddaughter, does she have any type of fear of you? Deanie thought about that for a moment, and he said no. I have an 18-month-old granddaughter, Renly. She has no fear of me, and she shouldn't. There's a difference between the grandfather and the father. It's the father's role to discipline and keep them inside the boundaries. It's the wonderful, blessed role of the grandfather to say, come here, let me just love on you. <laughs> you know, most of us see God as a grandfather when we should see him as a father. And we try to treat God in that capacity. He's the grandfather that's just going to love on us. 
He's the grandfather that's going to buy us ice cream. He's the grandfather that's going to get us a pony when the time comes. (laughs) He's the grandfather that's going to do all these different things for us. When as you read the Bible, you find out that the relationship that God uses to illustrate his relationship with us is that of a father. That means that there should be a place for a healthy, holy fear. And it should be coupled with joy. And when it is, we're walking with the Lord on the right side of the boundary. And that's the way it should be. Now you might say, preacher, that all sounds really good, but it also sounds really Old Testament. All you're doing is showing us stuff out of the Old Testament. There's no New Testament application for this. We live in the New Covenant. We live under the blood of Jesus. We're covered by grace. We are covered by all of His goodness. Don't you remember Jesus died on the cross to cover our sins? That's what He did for us. So that's all Old Testament thinking. And there is no application for it in the New Testament. That's why popular preaching today and Christianity today can foster that idea because they want to teach so that people will believe that the New Covenant doesn't teach any of that. And for anybody that would say that to me, I would say, open your Bible. Read your Bible. Start in Matthew and read to Revelation. You're going to find out that this same idea exists there. You get to the book of Philippians and the Apostle Paul's going to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You work it out with fear and trembling, and that's not just shock and awe. That means that I need a healthy, holy fear of God, because if I don't work out my salvation with fear and trembling to a place where I surrender to the sovereignty of God through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, I'm going to hell. That's it. It's pretty plain. If I don't work that out with fear and trembling, I'm in trouble. Somebody say amen. Amen. So read your Bible. When you do, you're going to get to other places like the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. These weren't written by the Apostle Paul. These weren't written by Peter. These words didn't come from John or some dude named Hugh. These came from Jesus. These are Jesus' words, and they were written to churches that he loved. Take a look at this. Here's five of them. To the church in Ephesus, he said, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent to the church in Pergamum. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Get back inside the boundaries. Remember the ancient landmarks that your fathers set. To the church in Thyatira, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. To the church in Sardis, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And to the church in Laodicea, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. So be zealous and repent. There is a place for fear, coupled with joy in our walk with God. In fact, fear is the protector of the relationship. Fear was given to us by the Lord to keep us on the right side of the boundary, to make us remember not to move the ancient stones. Fear and joy go together like peanut butter and jelly go together. That's the way it's supposed to be. If you have never experienced pure joy, eat a peanut butter sandwich with strawberry jelly slathered between it. And I'm talking about peanut butter on both sides of the bread, not a cheap 
motherly way of making a peanut butter sandwich when things are running a little short and you just put peanut butter on one side. I'm talking about peanut butter on both sides of the bread. Slap it together on some strawberry jelly. You got joy. Now, some of you would try to tell me that, oh, no, Phil, it's peanut butter and bananas. Ha! That's not godly. Somebody else might say peanut butter and pickles. Now, that's joy, and I would tell you you're a heretic. Peanut butter and strawberry jelly. That's joy. Fear and joy go together like freedom and responsibility. Fear is the protector of the relationship. So use it. God gave it to you. Use it so that you remain safe inside the boundaries. And when you do, and you find yourself on a path where you are seeking a homeland, where you are seeking the the opportunity to stand face-to-face with the Lord again and to be in His presence and to stay there forever, you will find that the boundaries that He had set for you were boundaries that just open up for us in heaven as we get to Him. And he says, now you don't have to worry about boundaries because everything here is good and right and holy. So enjoy it. Experience it. And if you live on the right side of the boundaries, those ancient landmarks, your name will be added to Hebrews chapter 11 where we find the whole idea of seeking a homeland. That hall of faith of people that lived on the right side of the landmarks. You'll find your name added to that list. There's nothing greater. You want to talk about joy That's what happens when the Lord says to us, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Well done. You stayed on the right side of the ancient landmarks and you never moved them. As the worship team comes, I'll just share this with you from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It helps us understand all of this, just ties it together. Listen to this. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I'll be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God in the fear of God.